The first question I have here to you is how would you identify yourself? Like, if I asked you where you came from, what would you say? Well, that's a good question. This is Rana Ayub. I'm an Indian at heart, and that's where I belong. Rana could identify herself other ways, as a Muslim, as a woman, or maybe as a journalist. So you would identify yourself as an Indian? Always will. I was surprised to hear Rana talk about her Indian identity because of how much her own country has fought against her and the work she does there. As a journalist, she's covered the ruling party, the BJP, aggressively. As a Muslim, she's alarmed by the party's Hindu nationalism. Rana's first big investigation traced the murders of Muslim men to a high-ranking politician. I put him on the cover of the magazine that I used to work with, Tehelka, and I said, why is this man still free? This politician ended up getting arrested, but he didn't stay in prison. And looking back, Rana can't stop thinking about how naive she was. It was an explosive investigation. I was only 26, and I was quite an idealist, and I said, oh, wow, I mean, I managed to get this man behind bars. And then, of course, six months later, he was out. And this politician now, he's one of the leaders of the Hindu Nationalist Party, second only to the prime minister himself. You can imagine how popular that makes Rana when she goes home. She's become a punching bag for both government loyalists and internet trolls. Because she's Muslim, they call her jihadi. A few years back, someone made this video, actually photoshopped Rana's face onto porn. Within like an hour, that video was everywhere on my social media, on Instagram and Facebook, on, on Twitter. And I was doxxed the same evening. That is, my, my address and, and phone number were leaked on social media. So every, every 10 minutes, somebody would send me a message on WhatsApp saying, hey, is this you? I mean, do you offer your services for free, etc., etc.? And that, those messages would go on and on. It was almost on every phone in the country. My father saw it, went on my father's phone too. And he didn't, he didn't know what to tell me. And I realize why they hate me so much, because what I speak is not something that they, that they want to hear. It's ugly. It's ugly. It is. It is ugly. Yeah. Today on the show, Rana Ayub is going to explain India's ugly truth. You might have heard how the prime minister, Narendra Modi, is cracking down on Indian Muslims. Rana's experienced what that crackdown feels like firsthand. She's hoping more of her fellow Indians will start speaking out. She's hoping India puts this ugliness in the past for good. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
part of why I wanted to speak with Rana is that this summer, something happened in Jammu and Kashmir, India's only majority Muslim state. For decades, Kashmir has enjoyed semi-autonomous status within India. They had their own flag and their own constitution. They had their own legislature. But in August, the law protecting the status, it got revoked. It was something Prime Minister Narendra Modi had promised to do. And once it was done, thousands of Indian troops flooded into Jammu and Kashmir. Local politicians were put under house arrest. Phone services and internet were shut off. Jammu and Kashmir became a state on lockdown. Rana Ayub traveled there recently. And what she found was a local population that had lost any love for India. There was not a single person that I met who actually nurtured a pro-India feeling. They felt betrayed. Even the elite, I mean, earlier when I used to meet the elites in Kashmir, because the privileged, they would say, oh, we are fine the way things are because, you know, we love our life. And But there's a sense of betrayal even amongst the elites. And as far as the middle class and the youth are concerned, they said, if, we always told you, this is what India thought of us. For them, Kashmir was just a piece of land, a real estate. It was never about us. You're one of the few journalists who has been there to mm-hmm. see what is happening. Can you just tell me what you saw? When I went to Kashmir, and I went to South Kashmir, I was in, in various parts where the violence has been reported. There was not a single house where a child was not picked up by the paramilitary forces. I met an 80-year-old woman who was in dialysis. She had lost both, I mean, both her kidneys were not functioning. And she said, I have two children, ma'am. And she kept on calling me ma'am. And she said, she was speaking in Kashmiri and somebody was translating it for me. She said, they took them overnight. I don't even know where my sons are. She said, you know what? I, I, I go around attending weddings. I go around meeting people so that it eases my pain. But they are my children. I met Families whose eight and nine-year-olds have been arrested and detained, and they don't even know where where they've gone, what jails are they in. They've constructed a new jail in 15 days' time in the valley so that they could accommodate the children. And the children that they can't accommodate, they're sending them all over the country in jails. How do you expect the families to reach out to their children? They don't even know where they are. Mm. Is this how a state endears itself to its citizens? When you ask your contacts in the ruling party, what is the plan here? You know, that's the, they don't have a plan. They really do not have a Kashmir plan. As Rana talked to Kashmiri people, frantic people, sad people, people worn down but carrying on, she cried because she'd been in their shoes. I knew what it felt like to be othered in your own country. Mm. I knew what it felt like to be overnight thrown out of your house and detained. I knew what it felt like when they take away your very basic fundamental right from you. I wonder if we can go back and talk about what happened to you when you were nine years old. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like it really, it frames a lot of your reporting. Yeah. Because... You felt so viscerally how the country changed. So take me back. So we lived in a predominantly Hindu locality. My father was a government school teacher and... Uh, beloved. Beloved. He was called Masterji, which is a term for teachers. And they would, they would love and respect him. So hmm. we never, we felt, we felt so respected. 
To hear Rana tell it, hers was the only Muslim family in the neighborhood where she grew up. But they were welcomed at the Hindu temple during holidays. Her sister would make sweets ahead of Hindu festivals. And when her mom had a miscarriage, a Hindu woman took care of the family. They enjoyed a community. But all that changed on the 6th of December, 1992. This footage you're hearing, it's from Ayodhya, India. It shows Hindu mobs gathering, growing violent, just outside of the Babri Masjid, or the Babri Mosque. It's a historic mosque. It was a symbol of faith for Muslims all over the country. It was also built on land that is considered sacred to Hindus. Do you remember watching people attack the mosque? On that evening news that day, they showed images, uh, the visuals of people on top of the tomb with swords, and they had these hammers. What followed was a massive and sudden movement into the masjid. Both the UP police and the CRPF vanished. And they had these orange flags of, of the ruling party, of, of the BJP, uh, just ruling party now. And they had these orange flags, and they planted one flag on the top huh. of the dome. Uh, it's like going demolished. to the moon. It is. Like, it is like, this is ours now. Yeah. We have taken control over this mosque. It was very symbolic. I remember my father cried that day. The first dome collapsed at about 2 o'clock. The second dome fell at 3.30. The people behind this takeover, the Hindu nationalist BJP party, they weren't in charge of India back then. They are now. In fact, the shocking events of December 6 continued well after the masjid was demolished, late into the night. The demolition of this mosque sparked riots all over India, and Rana's Muslim family suddenly felt very vulnerable in their Hindu neighborhood. Our Sikh neighbor started banging our door um, a couple of hours later, and he was sweating. His name was Mr. Bagga. That's the name. I wish I knew his first name. But, you know, we didn't really have a culture of calling people by their first name. So we used to call him Bagga Uncle. And uh, <laughs> he knocked on our door. He used to wear this turban. And uh, when he walked in that day, he wasn't the person that we knew. I mean, he was very, very nervous. He was scared. You could see the fear dripping in the form of sweat uh, from his face. And... Uh, he took my father and my brother aside. My brother was, my brother must have been 16 around that time, my eldest brother. And he said, um, they are arriving, they're coming, they're coming for these girls. And my father said, what do you mean? He said, all, he said, he said there is a crowd, there's some, there's some 200 people and they want to take your, your, your daughters away. And my father said, what do you want me to do? And my mother just, you know, held us tight as if as if somebody was taking us away. And my father said, what do you, what should we do, Bagaji? And he said, I'm going to take the girls away. And he made me and my sister sit there on his bike and he drove us to his family friend's house, which is a predominantly Sikh locality. But my biggest fear was not for myself. I'd left my family back home and we were told that rioters were coming. So I didn't know if my family was safe. I How long were you there? We, we, we took refuge for three months. For three, We didn't even have a phone in our house. So we would wait anxiously for Bagga uncle to come home and tell us what, it ha- what was happening. So he would come every two weeks because it was not safe to step out at that point of time. And I remember visitors in that Sikh household would ask, who are these two girls? And they would say, oh, they're refugees. Mm. And I would ask my sister, what does refugee mean? And she said, people who take shelter in other people's house. I said, why aren't we going home? And she would say, look, there's, there are people, the army men marching, they're protecting us. And she was, she was just, she didn't want me to, 
worry worry and know the harsh reality she was old enough to understand that the world around us had changed i could only feel it i i could sense something was wrong i could sense that i was sitting in the bunch of strangers on the dining table when i was eating food they were they were hospitable people they were really nice we shared a room with their daughter for like 3 months and she didn't complain even once <laughs> they really made us feel home but it wasn't home because it, it didn't there was my mom wasn't there neither was my dad and my and my siblings and i wanted to be back home and when we went back home 3 months later everything had changed Rana's father was transferred from his job and her family moved to a new apartment away from their home Sahara village where they were living among Hindus now they were in a predominantly muslim location so we had a slaughterhouse behind us and we had a dumping ground in front of us so it was this unpleasant smell that surrounded our apartment uh, it was a very very low middle class society and there were only muslims living there and i had to tell daddy as a daddy but sahar village wasn't sahar wasn't like this here there are only muslims and he said you will be safe here and then i would kind of associate being with muslims as being safe i grew up with that idea and that should not have been the idea that i, I should have grown up with What happened at the Babri Mosque has haunted India and its politics to this day. There was an investigation of the mob that demolished the mosque. Then the courts were tasked with determining whose holy place graced this land first. Government surveyors were ordered to do a full excavation. And the question was, who should be able to worship on this land? This case went all the way to India's Supreme Court. the hindu side said that we want a ram temple in that place a hindu temple a hindu temple for them and the muslim side said a mosque should be at that side because it was demolished and was illegal and prime minister modi had said along with other people in his party yeah i will put a hindu temple yes. on this site i mean how could you as prime minister of the country which is 1.3 billion people which is a secular country which has people from all religions caste culture how could the prime minister of a secular democracy say this before a supreme court ruling so you arrived in the united states just a day before this yeah was announced i was in dc and uh, that verdict was to be announced 12:30 a.m. us time so very late at it night it was very late at night so the court started reading the judgment and the reporters outside were diligently reporting it on television they just said went step by step by the court said well, the demolition was illegal this was illegal so we said i said so i messaged my father i said so see there is hope i told you because And the demolition demolition was, was illegal illegal right and then the judge rules and the judge talks about faith and how you know faith should be um protected and that faith is sacrosanct and then he says that Hindus have the right to build a temple in that place and Muslims were given 5 acres of land far removed from that place. It was like there's some unwanted person and you want to please that person. There's a beggar on the street and you give them something to please them, to placate them. It felt like that. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing on television. Mm. I felt how could the Supreme Court of India do this? Was faith above justice? Well, you can see how a judge would think, "Oh, I'm splitting it." you know yeah. i'm saying well we should respect faith and this was illegal what happened here but then at the end bending and saying you can build a hindu temple here yeah i mean the supreme court of india and i'm i'm not somebody who wants a 
contempt of court notice from them. But I've had too many notices thus far. Uh, but I knew it was unjust. And I, and I expected, I'd expected Muslims on Twitter and social media to react. And they were numb. I did not see a single reaction. I've never seen Muslims so silent. By and large, the 230 million Muslim population, which considered the Babri Mosque as a symbol of faith, as a symbol of history, of their history, their cultural legacy, was silent. There's this palpable fear in the country, which I have not seen. I've not seen something like this before. This fear, this silence, it wasn't just on Twitter. Rana was watching all this happen in D.C., staying with a Muslim family. And as the verdict was reported on the screen, one of her hosts, he almost shrugged off the news. He looked at me and says, why are you watching it? And he looked at he said, you want some tea? You want some biscuits? I said, are we celebrating? He said, no, I'm just trying to tell you that this is normal. You should now reconcile with the India that we are living in right now. He was surprised that I was reacting. He said, didn't you see this coming? Hmm. He said, you are romanticizing this idea of India that you still believe in. Do you still believe in it? I do. I do. I do. Why? You know that guy who saved us, the Sikh guy, Bagganke? There have been many such saviors in our lives. And not just from me, but for many Muslims in India. I still believe in the goodness of the Indian citizens, but they are silent. And I wish they could speak out. But I know for a fact that they do love us and they do not hate us. Rana, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. It was... um, I'm feeling lighter. Let's just say that. I'm feeling lighter. Rana Ayub is a journalist based out of India. She's also a global opinions writer at The Washington Post. You can find links to some of her latest work in our show notes. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Mara Silvers, and Danielle Hewitt. You can find me today and, like, every day on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. I'm Mary Harris. I will talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> 